Welcome to Celebration Church's podcast. We hope this helps you to know God better and trust Him more. To learn more about Celebration Church, please visit us at celebrationchurchlive.com. We, um, since Easter, have been looking at this idea of the good fight. And we uh, see, in, which we'll get into the scriptures in just a minute, that we're called to fight the good fight of faith. But sometimes it can go, what, what does that even look like? What does that even mean? And so we have been uh, kind of delving into that concept. And so if you've got your bulletin, if you've got your, uh, if you're going to track along with your digital means, however it is you're going to do that, we've launched with this idea the last few weeks that no one has ever fought for you like Jesus. That is the basis of the good fight. If we think that we're in this fight, that we're the one that's supposed to win it, um, we, we've put, we're stepping into a fight that the, with the wrong mindset, with the wrong aim, because guess what? The battle is already won. The battle is already won. That's why it's called fighting the good fight of faith, is we are trusting that what Jesus accomplished, what, when he went to bat for us, he fully won it once and for all. And for us to then walk out the truth of what that looks like in our daily lives, nobody has ever fought for you like Jesus. I hope you have friends that have your back. I hope you have people in your life that, that will, will go to bat for you and, and be an advocate for you. But the truth is, even if you feel like you don't really have anybody on that level in your life. I'm here to tell you, God loves you. He's had your back the whole time. He, he is with you, and we're going to look at what that means to really trust that in a deeper level. But first, let's look at 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 12. 1 Timothy 6, 12 tells us this. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called when you made your good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Take a hold of it, not earn it. Just take a hold of it. That is the good fight of faith because there is this tension, there's this pull for us to get wound up in so many other things. And that's one of the reasons we love to do communion. We, and we choose to do it on the first Sunday of the month. It's not some sort of biblical thing that you do it on the first Sunday. Uh, the scriptures tell us to do it often, to do it regular. Uh, guess what? Um, if you're a believer, you can take communion at home. It, you, you can take communion at, at times because Jesus says, as often as you do this, do this in remembrance of me. And as we take communion, we remember that Jesus physically won the battle. He spilled his blood, his, his, blood he, his body bled for us. He physically went in the grave. He physically came out of the grave. He won the battle. And communion is this beautiful, wonderful reminder that the battle is already won. And our fight is to stay focused on the truth that he has won it. And the thing is, is as we do that, then we have this idea and we have these different ideas when it comes to fighting. Um, and we've talked about fighting against the odds or fighting uphill or, or fighting against the elements or the weather. And 
Yeah, there are those phrases in our lives. Um, but the truth is, is if I bring up and I say the word fight to you, like you're in a fight, I guarantee most people immediately think of a person, that they're fighting a person or they're fighting a group of people or they're fighting a, against a, 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 a people that represent a certain mindset or certain ideology. And that is where our tension, every time we think about the idea of conflict or fight, we don't go to those things of fighting against the odds or fighting against the elements or some sort of other thing. Man, we go to somebody. That fight has a face. And as we look at the scriptures, we need to understand that our fight is not with people. Our fight is to love people, even those who don't like us. That's the challenge. God's called us to fight to love people not to fight with people, not to fight against people. Here's the problem, is some people come into our lives ready to fight. Some people come at us ready to fight, and scripturally we are called. It's the fact, let's look at Matthew 22, verse 36. There's a guy that comes up to Jesus and says, Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, this is the first and greatest commandment, and the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Now, if you're new to church, the idea of the law and the prophets may not make a lot of sense. But Jesus is talking to a teacher of the law. He's talking to a Jew. And in the Jewish world, the law and the prophets was everything. That was their whole world. Everything they did, everything they put in their mouth, everything they put in their body, everything they did with their time and their days and their calendars all revolved around what did the law and the prophets have to say. And so as Jesus is talking to this, this Hebrew person in this Hebrew audience, and he says that if you will love God and you will love others, everything else you care about in life will come in line. That's what he's saying. Your entire life hangs on it. Everything that's important in life hangs on these two things. You walk in loving God and loving others and all the rest of these edge stuff, it just begins to come in tow. It just begins to come in line. And most of us can sit there and go, okay, um, I, I can, I have, I've had my, my beefs at points with God. I've prayed and he didn't answer the way I wanted him to answer. There was these things that took place. There was tragedy and I was mad at God. And, but I'm sitting here, I'm in church. I'm, I've, I've decided that I want to have a good relationship with God. I'm sitting here in church right now. I'm watching online right now. I'm trying to love God. I'm trying to love God. I'm pursuing that. I want that. But this idea that loving people, I can love some people, but all the people, I don't know about that. That's the challenging, that is the incredible challenging part. And Ephesians chapter 6 verse 12 says, for our struggle, our struggle 
This week, if I have you look back as we sit here today on Sunday morning, when you look back to last week, you may have struggled with some yard work. You may have struggled with an assignment on your job. But more than likely, we poll everybody in this room and we say, what was your struggle point last week? It's going to have a face and it's going to have a name. Just almost always, that's the way it goes. Yes, there's other things we struggle against, but most of the time, it has a name. And the scriptures understand that we struggle not against flesh and blood, You think your struggles are against these people or against a a boss that you just can't seem to please, a a spouse or a friend that just constantly is attacking or offended or hurt or however it may go, and we think our struggle is on that front. But the Scriptures remind us our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but it's against something on a deeper level. It's against rulers and against authorities and against the powers of darkness of this world, against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Now, wait a minute. We're called to love God and we're called to love others and our entire world revolves around that. So when we have struggles on relationships it totally makes sense that it is actually a struggle against us loving God. It's a struggle against the stuff that's most important in life. If everything that's important in life can be handled by loving God and loving others, when we are having a struggle in loving others, it is affecting the most important pieces of our life. And so many times we're so fixated on, on the wrong level, we miss out on where the, where things, the win actually is. Growing up, we uh, parents would take us to the lake. And so loved to go to the lake. And we had a boat and we were not, we didn't go out to fish. That was not our thing. We would do some fishing But what we love to do, what my dad loved to do is to take us across the lake at high rates of speed um, and try to knock us off of tubes and water skis and all sorts of stuff. That was what my dad liked to do. And so, and we apparently enjoyed like being behind the boat um, and getting thrown around and doing all that kind of stuff. And that was what we did. So we would have these different things and we would go out and we would just ski and ski and grill and ski. And that was what we did. And, uh, and so we go out on this one holiday and we go to uh, uh, Inks Lake and it's raining. And it's drizzly and it's raining and it is just not skiing weather. And we're there at the lake and we're just sitting in our tent and we're there for days and days. And so finally, um, my parents decide, um, well, we're going to do something to have a little bit of fun. We didn't take any real fishing gear because that's not what we went to do. So they go to the little uh, tackle shop and go to the bait shop. um, And there's these old school cane poles. And so just just a cane pole Um, with some line and a bobber and a tiny little hook to catch some little perch and bluegill and that kind of stuff, some sunfish. And so, and then got some worms. 
So me and my two younger sisters, we each have our own cane pole. We're sitting on the banks, and we set up our stuff. Well, they didn't have, like, nets or any of that, so we, we used some, some dish pans to be our, where we kept our, our fish. And so and my sisters were sitting there. We're just we're almost shoulder-to-shoulder fishing. So they'd sit there, and they'd stick their hook in there, and in seconds, they're yelling, Daddy, Daddy, I caught a fish, I caught a fish. And they carried over there, and they would not touch the fish or touch the worm, and my dad would do all the work, and then they would go over and do it, and they're just yanking fish out of the water like crazy. My Man, I was very competitive with especially my directly younger sister, Ginger, and, um, and she caught literally, if I remember right, she caught 60 or 70 fish. She caught dozens and dozens of these little fish. My sister right behind her, she catches a couple of dozen fish. I've been fishing right beside them for like this hour. I've caught three fish. I'm like, this is ridiculous. What is the problem? I've got a defective cane pole. This is like, this cane pole is busted. Like, I don't know why, because they're right there, and their little bobber goes under, and they've got fish, and I'm just like, Oh, I was getting so mad. So, hey, I, I knew how to do this. As soon as they would go over with the daddy, daddy, I caught a fish, I got, their, I got the hot spot. So, man, I'd get over there and I'd fish in the hot spot. Nothing. And then her sister would come over and glare at me that I took her hot spot and she'd go to fish. Bam! Fish. I'm like, oh! It was just, just an infuriating hour and a half of just... Could not catch anything. Finally, my sister, she got, she got tired of catching fish. She just caught too many fish. And so my mom goes over and catches like a dozen real fast. I, I'm like, these, these fish hate men. They just hate it. They're like, no, I ain't biting that. Ain't no man getting credit for catching me. And so I don't know what was happening. And so, but it was just, they were not biting. And so finally, after a while, um, we decided to see what was going on. This made no sense. Same spot, same hook, same where I lift, we lift our, and compare how deep we're fishing. Well, I was fishing about 18 inches deeper than my sisters. The only time I ever caught a fish is when I would check to see if I still had bait. And I would come through this magical layer of fish and they would get one, but it would just drop down to the bottom, and apparently I'm just sitting on the bottom and getting ignored, and I was fishing completely on the wrong level. I was not getting the results because I was just operating way too low. They were operating on an entirely different realm. We're side by side, and they're sitting there, and they're winning in life, and I am just struggling and frustrated and irritated, and all it took was just a little adjustment, and all of a sudden now that I'm operating on the right level, fish, 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 fish. So many times we're sitting there, and it's, we can be right next to other people who understand. We wrestle not against flesh and blood. Begin to allow God to be their champion. I'll take their problems to a higher level. Not begin to just stay down here in the nasty muck and all of that and understand why am I not having any win? But if we'll just elevate and be where we're supposed to be, where God has called us to be, we'll walk in the victory he's already provided. We tend to just operate and look too low. 
God's called us to be able to function on a completely different level. And Jesus, even with the people who felt like that they were dialed in and focused in just right on the scriptures, he had to recalibrate them. Let's look at Matthew chapter 5, verse 43 through 47. Jesus says, you've heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? He's, he said, it, you know what? You feel real good about yourself, that you feel like you're, yes, I love people. I'm a loving individual. If you love me, I love you. If you don't love me, I pity you. And that's the way the entire world functions. And Jesus said the only way that we are going to unwind the whirlwind of hate is to begin to choose to love no matter what. No matter what. That's the only way we unwind this, just the storm of hate that we live in is just to choose that we're going to default and we're going to function on a higher plane. We're going to function in a space of love even when others don't function in a space of love. And the truth is, is it's hard. What Jesus is asking in this space, it's hard. To love those who don't love you, those who who despise you, who, who use you, talk bad about you, tell lies about you. Man, that's, that's incredibly hard. But you know what's harder sometimes? There are places where we can just, you know, discount the haters. We can just discount them. You're like, okay, that's gonna happen. I, I'm just gonna, I'm not gonna get sucked into your mess and just kind of try to walk above it. But man, what those who are supposed to love us, those who are supposed to be kind to us, those stings, whew, those hurt the worst. Those hurt the worst. And that is the challenge of doing this. When someone we love acts like an enemy, someone who's supposed to love us acts like an enemy, what are we supposed to do? when there are people who are supposed to like us and those who are supposed to love us. Luke chapter 17, verse 4 and 5. This is Jesus telling his disciples, even if they sin against you seven times in a day and seven times come back to you saying, I repent, you must forgive them. This is somebody who has said, I'm sorry, seven times in the same day. They're just keep offending you, keep doing it, keep doing it. He says, forgive, 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 forgive. He's telling his disciples that. And the apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. <laughs> increase our faith. 
they understood right here before even the fullness of Jesus having accomplished what he was going to accomplish, that fighting the good fight of faith was going to involve loving people who are hard to love, being kind to people who are unkind, forgiving people when they repeatedly offend you. In that space, yes, we have to say, Lord, I can't do that on my own. Increase my faith. And the sooner we understand that's not something we can do on our own, the quicker we tap into the source for doing it. The quicker we're able to go ahead and say, God, I need help in being able to do this. God, help me to love this person. Help me to forgive this person. Help me to be able to step into this space. Because even people sometimes we share the most with, even we can share something incredibly special with, when, when, when brokenness comes in, all of a sudden it doesn't matter. None of that other stuff matters. All that matters is the hurt. Um, funny enough, this week um, I got sucked into uh, one of those little Facebook things that says, you know, like uh, 12 uh, strange facts, you know. And so, and you sit there and you read the list and there's like a kajillion advertising between each one of them and you just quickly get past it. And, and um, but um, so as I got sucked into that, um, there was this space that, um, this one of these little strange facts um, that there's a language um, that is that's still uh, barely alive today um, that originated. It was uh, 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 language of some of the tribes in Mexico uh, well before the Spanish showed up in Mexico. The name of the language is Ayapaneco, and I hope I'm saying that right, but the odds are there's nobody in this room that could correct me. So, uh, so that's the way it's said. Um, but um, this, this, this language, Ayapaneco, um, is, uh, has dwindled down in its use so much that there's only two people on the planet right now that speak Ayapaneco. Here's the problem. They refuse to speak to one another. They are mad at one another. They got hurt. And they share this dying language, the only other person on the planet that, that shares this heritage with them, that can share these syllables and know what they mean and all of this heritage that goes back well before any of the, the history of modern Mexico or any of those things that dates back long, 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 long time. They can't enjoy any of that because the only other person on the planet that shares that with them, they're mad at. And they refuse to speak to one another. Not only is their relationship in jeopardy, but obviously the language of Ayapaneco is how is it going to be passed on if the two people who can speak it won't speak it? The two people who can talk won't talk. And that's indicative of our relationships. Our relationships, we didn't get here by accident. All of your relationships come from with some sort of space of shared history, some sort of things that, that, that got you here. 
You and I are believers on this part of the planet, but we didn't get here by accident. This, this gospel came here thousands of years and thousands of miles, and there's all sorts of interconnectedness, and how heartbreaking is it for you and I to be sharing this space and then all of a sudden get sideways with one another and not be able to, to share in the future of what that history has birthed? It's, it's heartbreaking. And from heaven's perspective, it's It's tragic. But folks, every time we enter into relational conflict, that there's more on the line than just the relationship. There's more on the line than just that Facebook friend request. There's more on the line than just those different things. There's, there's what God has planned for that relationship, and he calls us a body, and we're to interact and, and connect with one another. And we have to understand and see this from heaven's perspective. See, Jesus invested a lot of time teaching on relational conflict. If you've been a part of church for a while, um, you're familiar with Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, and you're familiar in particular with the Beatitudes. And most of the time, as you're reading through, you get into the Beatitudes, and there's no context, there's no setup. Um, But what I want us to do today is I want us to revisit something we're we're familiar with. But I want us to look at the Beatitudes through the lens of relational conflict. And let's just look at what Jesus had to say through the lens of relational conflict. Let's look at Matthew chapter 5, verse 2. It says, and he began to teach them, and he said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Again, we're looking through the lens of relational conflict. So the poor in spirit, the downcast, the heavy-hearted, what can make you more heavy-hearted than a broken relationship? What can make you more poor in spirit than somebody you once shared laughs with and memories with and joy with, all of a sudden not being able to do that anymore. But here's the place. It says, bless you, poor, because it says theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That God has not given up on that relationship. God has a plan at work in that space. Even though you're grieving, even though you're in a space that's grieving, The kingdom of heaven belongs to you because you're valuing that relationship. You're valuing that person. Yes, right now it's producing pain because you're grieving, but God wants us to always value relationship. You're seeing it from heaven's perspective. You're blessed because yours is the kingdom of heaven. You're doing, your, your heart is looking in the right direction. Blessed are those who mourn. Actually in a place of grief over this relational conflict, for they will be comforted. What's the greatest point of comfort in a place of relational conflict? Reconciliation. Those who mourn over this, we have the hope that the Spirit of God wants reconciliation too. You're on heaven's side when you want reconciliation, when you want things to be restored. Now, let me clarify. Restoration doesn't mean putting you back in the place to be re-victimized. 
okay? That is not what restoration means. It doesn't mean that all of a sudden there's a reset and now you're at a place where all of a sudden you've been put and you're, and you're fully vulnerable again. No, there needs to be some growth. There needs to be some healing. There needs to be some stuff to go along. But when we mourn, we mourn because what, what once was was not working right. And God wants to bring restoration. He wants to comfort. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit God. <clears throat> inherit the earth, sorry. Meek, understood as humility, understood as power under control. What's the easy spot for us when we're in a relational conflict? We always see the other person as the offender and us as the, the person who is the victim. We're the person who is righteous in this and there's this little bit of spiritual pride that can come in when we feel like they're wrong and I'm right. But the scriptures say, blessed is the meek. You keep a humble spirit about it. You keep an open mind that maybe I had some missteps in this myself. Maybe I did this, had some wrong in here myself. For they will inherit the earth. All of a sudden, we stay a little bit humble, and man, God can begin to do some things on the earth through our point of humility. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. That hungering and thirst for righteousness through relational conflict is to see reconciliation, to want things to be right, right in me, right in the other one, right in the relationship, right with God. And there's a promise that will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. And just about every point of relational conflict, at some point we have to choose to just be merciful. To just, just be merciful. And guess what? More than likely the other person is gonna need to be on some level merciful with you. It's on some level merciful with you. But when we choose to be merciful, we can be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Us desiring nothing but the heart of God. Not all of a sudden now I'm in the place, I'm in the place of victim, so this gives me the upper hand and now I can drive this relationship. You've offended me and now you've got to make restitution. You've got to make things right. So now I'm in the driver's seat. Nope, nope, you got to be pure in heart for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers. There's not peace. It's relational conflict. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called the children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness. You continue to do the right thing, and this other person in this relational conflict continues to do the wrong thing, and they're persecuting you, and they're, they're being mean, and they're giving you a hard time. Yours is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. You're choosing to align with the heart of God and they are taking advantage of it. It says you're blessed in that space. You're blessed. You continue to walk this out right. They may insult you. They may persecute you. They may do that. But I'm telling you, you're blessed 
because of me. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. The people who God used to help prepare the earth for Jesus coming back to bring restoration and salvation, they were treated the same way. It's Jesus is dealing with relational conflict all the way through this. And then we look into verse 13, it just keeps going. You're the salt of the earth, but if, you, if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salt again? See, the truth is, is we're supposed to be spiritual salt. We're supposed to be enhancing everything, bringing healing, restoration, adding flavor. That's what we're called to be in this earth. But we can lose our spiritual saltiness when our attitude gets salty. When our attitude gets salty, we lose our spiritual saltiness. And God has called us to be spiritual salt. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone where? In the house. Where does most of our relational conflict happen? In our own homes. In our own homes. How many times can we sit there and have the light of life in our life and we've been hurt and we've been wounded by somebody in our house. And we're sitting there and we're keeping it covered up. He's not even talking about being a light out into the world, not being a light out in your community, not being a light out in your village. We gotta start right there. We gotta be able to remove that and let the light shine in our own home. But I get it. It's hard. We live with each other. We step on each other's toes. We misunderstand one another. We take advantage at times of one another. We do all that, and it is, it's a challenge. And that's where we get back to that space of, Lord, increase our faith. Verse 16, in the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. The truth is, this week I would challenge you to just read all of Matthew 5. Take you a few minutes, take maybe four minutes, and all of Matthew 5 is relational. Pouring into Matthew 6 is relational. The bulk of the Sermon on the Mount is dealing with relationships. Why would Jesus spend so much time dealing with stuff that has relational impact? Because the two most important things are loving God and loving others. Our bottom line this morning is this. The good fight is trusting our good God when we're treated bad. That's part of the good fight is trusting our good God when we're treated bad. Thanks for listening to this week's message from Celebration Church. We hope you'll stay connected by following us online. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter.